Hillary. I'm Emily. And we're the, we're the sirens. Today we are talking about White Christmas, which is a 1954 American musical romantic comedy. Um, it was directed by Michael Curtiz, who also directed Casablanca. Um, oh. It stars uh, Bing Crosby, Danny Kaye, Rosemary Clooney, and the dancer Vera Ellen. It opens during World War II when uh, celebrated entertainer Bob Wallace, played by Bing Crosby, is entertaining his fellow troops in a war zone with the help of a private named Phil Davis. It's Christmas Eve and they're hoping to give their general a warm send-off on his way as he's been taken off the, the post. The general shows up and there's some singing and then Davis ends up saving Wallace's life during a bombing. In return, Wallace promises to read Davis's music. Fast forward a few years, and Wallace and Davis are a box office gold as a team. But Davis is tired of working and just wants Wallace to settle down and take a break. On the eve of their like Christmas break from their sh- extremely popular show, Wallace convinces Davis to go see a floor show of two sisters of another guy from their regiment. They each are immediately smitten with, smitten with each of the sisters named Betty and Judy, who are booked for the holidays at an inn in Vermont. They all end up in Vermont, romance, singing, dancing, and some misunderstandings <laughs> ensue. <laughs> some really pointless misunderstandings yes. that could be resolved with, like, one conversation. That's right, yeah. We're not listening in on conversations that don't belong to you. It's fine. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I have some trivia about this movie. Please. This is the third of three films that feature... Bing Crosby singing White Christmas. Oh, God. And What's the, the third other one? Two, I, yeah, I know. The, the third one is Blue Skies, and the second one is Holiday Inn. Okay. And it was, it was really interesting. I've, you know, I've watched this movie before, but I very recently saw Holiday Inn on stage. Like, oh, right. Maybe like three weeks ago. And the plot is different of that movie, but it still centers around like, an inn and, like, trying to pull off shows that are going to, like, save the inn. Yeah. <laughs> and it's Bing Crosby. As the it's, like, so, basically the same movie again. Yes, except the old Holiday Inn is no longer popular, I'm assuming, because it has, like, an extremely offensive blackface scene. Right. Extended. And I think that's why, which is not, obviously, in the theater production. Right. Well, yeah, and in White Christmas, they just refer to a minstrel show. They don't actually show a minstrel show, which would involve yeah. blackface. Yes. So, so it's better, I guess? I don't know. So Yeah, I feel like people aren't as familiar with the movie Holiday Inn anymore. But anyway, that was that's just my first piece of trivia. Um, so the Vermont Inn that's featured in White Christmas is actually the same remodeled Connecticut Inn set from Holiday Inn. <laughs> Sure. And Holiday Inn was a black and white movie, so the whole uh, set was painted in grayscale, which is why, like, in this movie, it all looks super gray and drab, because they just used the same set. Oh. Um, but, but this is a color movie, so it obviously showed up differently. Yeah. According to Rosemary Clooney, the midnight snack scene mm-hmm. where um, Bob talks about which foods caused which dreams was almost entirely improvised, um, which I thought was funny. Cause, and it also makes sense because the things they were saying, I was like, that's not true. Yeah, this doesn't <laughs> make any sense at all. <laughs> 
Also, um, not in the original script was the Bing Crosby, Danny Kay sisters performance. Oh. Uh, apparently they were just clowning around on the set and the director thought it was so funny that he started filming it. Really? And, um, um, Bing Crosby's laughs are real, which I... Yeah, you can see I, that. Yeah, like, I part of me wanted to not like that scene, but, like, it's sort of infectiously funny just because you can tell they're having so much fun with it. Yeah. Um, and apparently the, the filmmakers, like, did a couple takes of it after that, and then they had a better take where uh, Bing Crosby was not laughing, but they didn't use it because people liked the laughing. Yeah. I just want to say right now that they are the gayest straight men. <laughs> They're Especially Danny Kay is like, yeah, yes, they are. And I say that with a lot of love and, like, if only there were more gay straight men. <laughs> yes, same. <laughs> um, so did you notice that there was, like, a really amazing male dancer who was just, like, brought in to dance with Vera Allen in various yes. scenes with no explanation? Uh-huh. He's famous. Well, he got to be famous, right? Yeah, so when I was watching it, I was like, that looks just like Bernardo from West Side Story. And then when I looked into the trivia, it actually is Bernardo from West Side Story. Um, George Shakiris, I don't know if I'm saying that right, and he won the Academy Award for Best Actor in West Side Story <laughs> um, in 1961. And he was pretty. He was a pretty good dancer. I, mean, I feel like you have to like break out the big guns for a partner for Vera, Vera right. Allen, because, like, Danny Kaye wasn't quite cutting it. No, he wasn't. The, I thought this was interesting. Bob Foss was the choreographer for this movie, although he was not credited for it. Ah. And I thought a lot of the dance scenes in this were really amazing, and that was probably, like, my biggest takeaway from... Because this was a rewatch for me, and I was like, I don't think I fully appreciated the quality of the, the dancing, dancing. And then these are just two little funny age things, but Betty was supposed to be the older Haynes sister, and she was actually seven years younger than Vera <laughs> Ellen. And Dean Jagger, who played the general, was supposed to be, like, elderly, but Bing Crosby was actually six months older than him oh in real life. Which is funny, because I actually wrote in my notes, Bing Crosby looks older than the general. And yeah. then I found... Turns out he is. This yep. I meant to look up how what year Ben Crosby was born in so we could know just how much older he is than Rosemary Clooney, but I did not look it up. Well, especially in the opening scene where it's supposed to be like 10 years ago during the war, I was like, you guys look way too old to be like... Yeah. Like, not that they could be serving, but it was mostly like men in their prime and they... Ben Crosby definitely looked. I was like, you are not some like... 24-year-old yeah. soldier. You you, be, you better not be trying to... Bing Crosby was born in 1903. So, oh, yeah. Rosemary Clooney was born in 1928. Great. So he's 25, 25 years older. Yep. Although, as we know from Charade, that happens fairly frequently. <laughs> yeah, but in Charade, it was Cary Grant. I know. I know Cary Grant kind of, like, rewrites the rules. It doesn't matter so... how old Cary Grant is. If you can get Cary Grant, it's fine. <laughs> Um, they did that all the time in Fred Astaire movies too. He like uh, in Funny Face, it was it was pretty bad with him. And Audrey Hepburn often is like, yeah. "My love interest is thirty years older than me, but it's fine. It's fine." And she was paired with Humphrey Bogart too. Like, it's <laughs> very weird. 
Again, um, I think I'm going to just say that it's fine when it's Cary Grant. If it's not Cary Grant, then it's weird. <laughs> so I believe that with your bio, you fulfilled a promise from an earlier episode, Hillary. Yes. We promised during, which movie was it? Court Jester. That's right, during Court Jester, that we would bio Danny Kay for a white Christmas. So here goes. He was born David Daniel Kaminsky in 1911. He was born in Brooklyn, and his parents were Ukrainian Jewish immigrants, and he had two other brothers. He attended public school in Brooklyn, so yay public school. His school eventually was renamed to honor him, so when you get famous enough, they name your school after you. His mother died early in his life, which was sad. He and his friends Soon after his mother died, he and his friend ran away to Florida to do some performing, and they just, like, bummed around uh, Florida for a while, and then Danny came back to New York, and his dad just didn't, like, care whether or not he went to back to school, so he didn't. He just hmm. did a bunch of, like, jobs as a soda jerk and an insurance investigator and an office clerk, and he apparently got fired a lot. Um, <laughs> he apparently lost his insurance job because he made an error that cost the company $40,000. Um, um, yep, that'll do it. <laughs> yeah, but in 1933, he joined a group called the Three Terpsichoreans, which was a vaudeville dance act, and they opened in Utica, New York, and that was the first time that he used the name Danny Kay. The act toured all across the United States and Asia. While they were in Japan, they they happened to be uh, in Osaka when this big storm came up and a piece of the hotel's, like, cornice um, fell down into Danny's room, and he he might have been killed, but he, he survived. Um, and the power went out because of the storm, and the audience was, like, totally freaked out because of the storm. And so Danny Kay went on stage holding a flashlight to illuminate his face, and he sang every song he could recall as loudly as he was able to. And that experience, like, of entertaining audiences that didn't speak English, like, he, from that experience, he started to do the kinds of things, you know, the facial expressions, the pantomime, the, like, wild gestures that um, eventually became sort of his, like, signature parts of his act. When he came back to the United States, there were no jobs, so he took whatever job he could get for a while and then made his film debut in 1935 in a short movie called... Moon Over Manhattan. Then he did some, you know, dabbled in some Broadway shows, including a short-lived Broadway show with Sylvia Fine, who was the pianist, lyricist, and composer. And Sylvia became both his accompanist and his wife. And (laughs) so... And then um, in 1941, he took a part in the movie Lady in the Dark, which was his, his, like, big break breakthrough role and apparently I have not seen this but now uh, I would like to see it he sang a song called Tchaikovsky in which he sang the names of a string of Russian composers like basically as fast as humanly possible that sort of 
allowed him to, you know, get a series of good roles in movies in the 1940s. And then he had a radio program named after him in the mid-1940s, was in a slew of films including, you know, through the 1940s and 50s, including The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, Court Jester, which we've seen, White Christmas, Hans Christian Andersen, which is the first movie that I ever saw him in. Throughout this period, his wife, um, Sylvia Fine, wrote many of the songs that, you know, were what made him famous. And I think we talked during Court Jester just about how she was an amazing writer and producer in her own right. So they were kind of a a power couple for, they weren't actually married that long. I was going to say, did they stay together? But no. uh, No, they didn't stay together. He, during the 1950s, he played, toured a lot, playing Buttons in a production of Cinderella in Australia. And then started a production company called Dina Pictures, which he named after his daughter, Dina. In the mid-1950s, he started doing television work. And in the course of that, also, you know, combined television work with a gig as the the UNICEF ambassador, for which he was eventually recognized by a variety of humanitarian organizations. In addition to being the ambassador for UNICEF, he starred in the movie Skokie, which takes place in Skokie, Illinois, and he plays a Holocaust survivor. Yeah, so he received an Academy Honorary Award in 1955 and the Jean Herschel Humanitarian Award from the Academy in 1982. So he was, I think, what, like always strikes me about him is that he was like enormously successful and entertaining but also like used his uh, power for good. He died of heart failure in 1987 at the age of 76 and his ashes are interred in New York and they renamed his high school after him. That's cool. There you go. You know, he has really grown on me I think because we watched Court Jester. Yeah. I think I... I feel like my work here is done. (laughs) He, there's something about his sort of slapsticky vaudeville vibe that appeals to me. Yeah, he's. Whereas in the past, I feel like I didn't give him enough of a chance. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate his like his silliness. And um, have you seen Hans Christian Andersen? Well, I think that's the thing. I remember attempting to watch it and not liking it. But I was very young. Yeah. So maybe it's worth a revisit now. Yeah. That was the movie. I remember seeing that movie when I was, I don't know how old I was, probably eight or nine or something. And and so he had he was already dead by that point. And I didn't, you know, I didn't understand that he wasn't alive anymore. And that was, like, when my dad was like, oh, yeah, this this, this is not a new movie. This is an old movie. And I was, it was, like, <laughs> the movie that taught me that <laughs> not all movies were, like, current <laughs> Well, I profiled Rosemary Clooney. It was kind of hard to choose because we had like these four big stars that we haven't done before. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, she was born on May 23rd, 1928, in Maysville, Kentucky, Mm -hmm. the daughter of Mary Frances and Andrew Joseph Clooney. And she was one of five children. And Rosemary and her sister Betty formed a singing duo. Yeah. And in 1945, they had their big break when they won a spot on Cincinnati's radio station WLW as singers. And really, she was most known in her career as a singer more than an mm-hmm. actor. Mm-hmm. Uh, her first recordings were in May 1946 for Columbia Records, and she sang with Tony Pastor's big band and continued to work with them until 1949, making her last record with them in May of that year. 
And then she made her first record as a solo artist right after that. And in the early 50s, she was a regular on the radio and television versions of Songs for Sale on CBS. And in 1951, her record of Come On In My House, yes. produced by Mitch Miller, became a big hit. Um, it was her first of many singles to hit the charts. But she actually hated that song. And like the only reason that she recorded it was because they forced her via her contract. <laughs> <laughs> so it was kind of ironic that that was like what made her a star. Um, she also recorded several duets with Marlena Dietrich, which I thought was interesting, oh. um, which I would like to listen to. <laughs> yeah. And appeared in the early 50s on Faye Emerson's Wonderful Town series on CBS. Um, and in 1954, she starred in this movie, um, which I read that the main reason she took was because she wanted to perform with Bing Crosby and it actually became the beginning of a friendship with him that um, continued in their careers. Uh, she starred in 1956 in a half hour syndicated television musical variety show, the Rosemary Clooney show. Sure. And then they all had the one of those. <laughs> I, I know. I was like, I wish there, I, I wish there were more musical variety shows now. Now, yeah. Uh, the following year, the show moved to NBC primetime as the Luck Show, starring Rosemary Clooney, um, but didn't last past the first season there. Um, and in later years, she appeared with Bing Crosby on television in various. TV specials, and they also did a concert tour of Ireland together. Oh. Um, and in 1960, they co-starred in a 20-minute CBS radio program that aired before the midday news each weekday. So it was kind of a big-time slot. This is the sad part of her life. Her mental health took a downturn in the late 60s. So she was married twice to the same guy, Puerto Rican movie star Jose Ferrer, but mm -hmm. she divorced him for the final time in 1967 after she discovered that he was having an affair. During this time, she was touring a lot and she became dependent on pills. And she also was good friends with Bobby Kennedy and she joined his presidential campaign and actually was performing the night that he was shot, and she Ugh. heard the shots when Ugh. he was assassinated on June 5th, 1968. Um, and then a month later, she had a nervous breakdown on stage in Reno, Nevada, and was hospitalized. And then she remained in therapy for eight years afterwards. And then she kind of, like, took a lot of time for recovery, but what she did recover and made a comeback in her career later on. She signed with United Artists Records in 1976 for two albums. Albums. And in, beginning in 1977, she recorded an album a year for the Concord Jazz record label, which continued until her death. Most of the big singers from her generation basically stopped performing by her age, uh -huh. and she just continued performing into the 70s and 80s, yeah. and even into the 90s. She did television commercials for Coronet brand paper towels, during which she <laughs> sang the jingle, Extra Value is What You Get When You Buy Coronet. <laughs> And it, uh, Jim Belushi parodied this on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> and she also sang a duet with Wildman Fisher on 
It's a Hard Business in 1986, and in 1994, she sang a duet of Green Eyes with Barry Manilow in his 1994 album, Singing with the Big Bands. Whoa. And uh, you may have gathered that she is related to George Clooney. She is his aunt, and in 1995, she guest starred on ER, which starred George, and she received a Primetime Emmy Award for her role. Um, In 96, she appeared on... Prairie Home Companion. Like, she was still working for a long time. She was a long-time smoker, which amazed me, because how do you have that voice and be a smoker? But I don't know. She did. Um, She was diagnosed with lung cancer uh, in 2001, and she had surgery, but it was unsuccessful, and she died six months later on June 29th, 2002, in Beverly Hills. Mm. So I kind of, I liked... Her bio, because she did have hardships, but she overcame them, and I liked that she, instead of just sort of, like, disappearing into the ether, kept working. Yeah. I mean, I feel like not many of the people that we... Well, I guess, like, some people continued to work in some ways, but they continued to work as, like, producers or directors, but she continued to like perform yeah I thought she also had a very interesting look that like you don't see as much like she had Mm -hmm. a very like strong face Mm -hmm. like she wasn't super delicate looking no which I liked yeah so so had you seen this movie before yes I I think at some point I realized that this was another movie from which I had taped uh oh really singing dialogue from because I was like (laughs) I haven't seen this movie in a long time but I remember this line (laughs) so (laughs) um Um, i feel like i also reference like to myself 45 minutes all to myself in in ways that most people don't recognize that it's from white christmas did you think it was kind of like i thought that a lot of the stuff was really manipulative about phil and judy trying to get them together like i was like phil if you want 45 minutes to yourself you can literally just leave the act or be like, hey, I'm taking a vacation. You, <laughs> you can do that. That's a possibility. You don't have to, like, interfere in your friend's life. I know, but maybe he wanted his friend to be like, happy. I also, like, totally it was, like, interpreting their relationship. Like, they were partners and friends, but they, like, got to a point where they were, like, like when they're bickering at the at the beginning, I was like, oh, you're bickering, like, like sisters, basically. Yeah. And... You know, and then, of course, there's some actual sisters who are, you know, bickering like sisters. And I was just like, okay, you know, you're, you're just, you're, you're like, like nagging each other the way that, like, I recognize as things that my sisters and I have done. But, like, it's, like, ultimately, like, loving, but, like, you can't get out of this, like, slightly unhealthy relationship. Too close. Too much in each other's business. That's right. I did like that opening scene where they're in their dressing room and you can just tell their familiarity because of like the choreography. Yes. Of they're like tossing their hat and cane and stuff around and they're not even looking at each other. They just know what's happening and they know when they're supposed to catch something. And I thought that was great, subtle development of what their relationship was. Yeah. Showing, not telling. Yes, exactly. This movie, I'd seen it like a couple times before. I actually enjoyed it more watching it this time. So did I. 
Oh, except what? Except for the, like, it, I felt like it really drags towards the end. Like, I felt like the first two thirds were really good. And then the final third, I was like, I see, I kind of was, I found the whole, like, general storyline sort of tiresome. And most of the songs around that <laughs> are also not as good. So I'm yeah. like, I don't know about this. But like, in the, especially the beginning, it was just constant singing and dancing. And I loved it. Yeah. I felt like the first half was a lot of setup. Was a like, oh, we have to set up this, like, the arm rubbing thing, and we have to set up the 45-minute thing, and we have to set up who these people are, and we have to set up all these other jokes that, like, will then have a bunch of payoff in the second half. Then they're in Vermont, (laughs) and, you know, payoff, 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 and, like, yes, they have to go, like, go back to New York and support the general, rally all the troops to come to Vermont because it isn't snowing. Which I was like, yeah, I don't really care. I, like, simultaneously did not care, but I also was like, oh my god, that's so sweet that, like, Yeah, like, I thought it was a nice sentiment that they were doing it. But also, the way that they had all the troops come and stuff, I thought that that would have seemed kind of patronizing as well, and that the general might not have liked that. You know what I mean? Like, I thought them going and performing at the inn to try to drum up business, I was like, well, that is fine. But I thought they crossed the line when they were, like, reaching out and being like, everyone needs to come and and do this, because I thought that wasn't something he would have wanted. Yeah. Although I feel like they set him up as a, like, in the very beginning, in that very first scene, the general is driving in, riding in the Jeep with the new general, and the new general is very, like, gruff and, like, you know, like, what's wrong with these people and how how can they be, like, performing and, you know, in this, the middle of this war zone and, how like, how is their music? And the, the like, our general is, like, he's, you know, he's definitely got the, like, the general mask on where he's like, oh, yeah, this is ridiculous and you're, you've got your work cut out, you know, to whip these guys into shape. As if, you know, like, he became a general because of, like, who he was at a particular time. Like, he wasn't, and it seemed yeah. like his, like, his troops responded to him because they liked him, not because he was in charge of their lives. Um, yeah, I mean, he seemed to have some humanity and compassion about him. But it, I did like the theme of how, basically, the, all these men had served, like, he, as the general, as an example, was, like, making huge contributions to the war, and now, like, ten years later, was pretty much forgotten and also given the message that he was no longer no longer useful or valuable and that ageism I thought was like a good thing for them to address and you know Mm -hmm. it's like it's still a problem today yeah they like set up that that line at the beginning and kept repeating you know like oh why are we doing x why are we gonna go see the Haynes sisters floor show when you know they're the sisters of the dog face boy and you know this is our and you know the line is oh we're doing it for a pal in the army and if they would go, like, take a, an evening out for, you know, some guy they don't even really like, you know, then they would do something even that much bigger for the general that they really love. Yeah. Yeah, that was another nice thing in this movie that they, it, there, I mean, there was, you know, there were some, like, dumb masculine things, but I thought it was really nice and, like, a break from toxic masculinity yeah. that they, they just come right out and say to the general in the end, like, we love you. I know. I, I like, forgot that there's a song about how, like, just about how we love the general. I was like, oh, geez. The relationship between uh, Phil and Bob also is yeah. very affectionate. I don't know. It just seemed like a model of, like, male camaraderie mm-hmm. and love that is not shown a lot 
now in movies. Yeah, and they're, like, they're bickering, but they, like, clearly have, like, the, like, the repartee of people who, like, work together and, like, have to be in small spaces together but get along pretty well in doing that. They annoy each other sometimes, but they're, like, fiercely loyal to each other, too. So they're like, well, if you want to do this, then of course we can do it. And I'm not going to, like, question it, really. I'm going to complain about it, but I'm not going to say no. (laughs) Can we talk about the music? Yes. So which songs did you like the best? Which song did I... I forgot that this movie opened basically with White Christmas. And then I, like, straight up started crying when they started started singing about the general at the beginning of the movie. And then I straight up yeah. started crying when they were singing about the general at the end. But... <laughs> I don't know. I forgot how much I liked the song Count Your Blessings instead of Sheep. Um, I know, me too. And it's super hokey, but I think it's such a... I I have, like, taken the advice of that song. Yeah. And, like, sometimes if I can't sleep, I will, like, remember that song and be like, oh, yeah, look, you know, I'm worried about something. Or I'll, like, I'll just, you know, keep thinking about, like, things that I'm lucky are in my life. And that, it is true. Yeah. And then you don't dream about liverwurst. No. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know if I have a favorite, but they, like, I was surprised at how moved some of them made me. Did you have a favorite? Well, I tend to favor more, like, the upbeat songs, so I love The Best Things Happen When You're Dancing. Oh, yeah. I sing that song all the time, and I also really like Snow. I think Snow's a fun song. Yeah. Well, and I forgot how, like, dynamic some of the songs were that, you know, that they didn't sing along to. It's just, like, Vera Ellen and Dancing Away. You know, because it wasn't to showcase her singing, it was to showcase her dancing. Yeah. yeah. And she was dubbed her singing. In oh, this. right. And because she, yeah, she wasn't really a singer. Which is funny she, to think about. <laughs> yeah, I think that in one one tiny instance where you can hear her actually singing in the movie, but the, all the rest of it is dubbed. Oh my gosh, the dancing is, yeah, I love the dancing to The Best Things Happen When You're Dancing, where they're like swinging around all those poles on the dock. Mm-hmm. Like, that was amazing. Um, when Veer Ellen does that, like, really fast like minute tapping mm-hmm. that was amazing she was such a good tap dancer yeah i did you, i also had totally forgotten that there was that like danny k dance number the choreography one. Oh yeah with the like eyelashes and the really heavy eye makeup yeah yeah so i was like watching that and i was like are they making fun of martha graham I went and I I looked it up, and apparently they were making fun of Martha Graham. No! (laughs) Which I think is kind of hilarious, because I was like, was this, like, the right time when they would have been doing that? Because the costumes looked very Martha Graham in that, Mm -hmm. and, like, all the weird, jerky movements. Yeah. Um, I read that this was sort of, like, indicative that she had become, like, a household name, the fact that they would (laughs) make fun of her in this movie. Yeah. Um, that reminds me of the Philly favorite, uh, Martha Graham Cracker. Like, <laughs> speaking of men wearing, uh, makeup and women's clothing in this movie, shout out to Martha Graham Cracker. Come on the show. That's right. <laughs> Let's tag them on Twitter. <laughs> Pig Iron Theater! Uh, <laughs> the only dance scene that I did not like was, like, the weird ending tableau with 
the Christmas scene. And yeah, that's they like, just had those, like, random children. Yeah. That he's, like, giving direction to as they're, like, yeah. going on... St- I mean, which I already was like, wait, are you the director or the producer or the performer? Are you all three? Are you just in charge? Like, where's your, like, stage manager? <laughs> Who... Who's in charge? (laughs) Who's making sure you're hitting all your marks? Oh, beautiful girl. What a gorgeous creature. Beautiful girl. Let me call a preacher. What can I do but give my heart to you? I mean, I eventually I want to talk about the costumes because... That's all you want to do with this movie? (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's uh the costumes were amazing <laughs> i wrote a note that said betty's pencil skirt with the pockets and then the yellow black blouse is just yes. like the outfit i want to wear to work every day where she's like i mean like added to like the like she's wearing that outfit when she and Bo- like bob is like trying to figure out what what he's done wrong which is that he, like, Emma, the housekeeper, has just misheard his, like, brilliant plan to bring the the men to the inn to, like, drum up business um, and make mm-hmm. the general feel better. So Betty, like, has misinterpreted, like, what's happening. And, or I guess Emma has misinterpreted what's happening and passed the lie off to Betty. But they're, like, having this, like, extremely tense, like, interaction. And she's wearing this, like, beautiful skirt... She's, like, sticking her hand in her pocket and, like, squaring her shoulders, like, do not freaking mess with me. (laughs) You can, I have my principles, and, like, you are not living up to them, and I have my hand (laughs) in my pocket. (laughs) But that whole time, I kept, like, screaming, like, express your anger. Challenge him. And this whole thing, if she had just said, hey, I'm pissed that you did this thing then they would have had a conversation where he was like, oh, I didn't do this. Yeah. Well, except for they... it would have been over. Yeah, except for they had have known, at this point, they've known each other for, like, what, four days? Five days? Maybe a little bit more? Not much more? And he, she's, like, just a floor show performer with her sister, and he's, like, apparently, you know, one of the most important producers and performers in the country. So there's, like, a little bit of power differential. Well, that... That is true, but if she still acts really pissy and then leaves, so like, <laughs> way, she's she's you know she's letting those feelings interfere with their professional relationship as well, right? <clears throat> right, because like getting on a train and taking another job anywhere like ruins any possibility that she'll work with Bob Wallace and Phil Davis ever again. It's okay though; yeah. they get married. The one theme I found kind of annoying was the whole like knight on a white horse thing where she was saying t- that she thought Bob was on on a white horse. Was that right before they kissed for the first time? Yeah. Because and there then, was so much sexual tension in that scene, I just was like, stop talking about the horse and just kiss. Just do it. <laughs> like, stop. Yeah. If that movie was made today, they definitely would have slept together. Yes. <laughs> like Immediately the- after discussing the white horse. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I didn't like how it was like, well, you have to be up on a pedestal for me to like you. And he was like, yes, I want to be up on a pedestal. Yeah. You know, so many other times, it's the woman who's up on the pedestal. And, you know, like in Philadelphia story, it's the woman up on the pedestal and has to like, and doesn't want to be on the pedestal and has no choice about being on the pedestal. And in this movie, it was swapped. 
Well, can't everyone just be down on the ground? (laughs) You're such a socialist. (laughs) (laughs) Almost like all the rest of my notes are about the costumes. Okay, tell me more about the costumes. (laughs) I mean, they're just, like, one-off things. I loved Vera's yellow, like, yellow coat that she yes. wears. Mm-hmm. That was she wears beautiful. a lot of mustard-colored things in this. Yes, and she pulls it off really well. Yeah. I like, yeah, she had that dancing outfit that was yellow. She had another really cute outfit that was black, white, and red. It was, like, a black and white checkered shirt and then, like, a red skirt. Oh, that yeah. fabulous. Mm-hmm. Betty had just like amazing cocktail outfits. Her outfits were very va va voo. Yeah. When she sings um, Love, You've Done Wrong by Me, or, uh-huh. and then she's in this like black mermaid number with like the glittery gloves, I was like, damn, girl, <laughs> like you look amazing. <laughs> you could sell anything right now and I would buy it. That's right. <laughs> buy some paper towels. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder if that's what she wore in the paper <laughs> Like, she had a number of really great evening gowns, too. And a lot of hers were, like, much more low-cut. And mm-hmm. then, I don't know, did you read anything about this? That there was this... There's a rumor, right? Story. About, about yeah. Vera Allen and why her uh, why she her outfits were not low-cut? Yes, yeah, so all of, literally every single one of her outfits, including her pajamas, had a turtleneck. Yeah. That is not a coincidence. Yes. <laughs> like, nobody's pajamas have a turtleneck. Have you ever <laughs> seen a pair of pajamas? <laughs> but Not in the 20th so the, century. The story is that it's because she had an eating disorder and it damaged her neck, which is very sad. But I, I read that that was a myth, so I don't know why, really. I mean, she looked great in the stuff with the high neck, but... yeah. I don't know if what what the story is behind that. Yeah, I mean, I I have no trouble believing that she had an eating disorder, but just because I'm sure she was under a, an enormous amount of pressure. Yeah, but I don't know that that would affect what your neck looks like. I have no idea. I think it's extremely difficult to be in the dance world and have a healthy body image yeah yeah I almost wanted to do her bio just so I could like learn more about her dance career and stuff but like we could we can't do everyone maybe well now you can never read about her ever on your own yep (laughs) yep I know this is this is the restrictions of being on this podcast everything happens on air (laughs) (laughs) if it's not for the podcast we cannot know about it (laughs) I've been living my own life making my own decisions for a long while now it's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. Do you think this movie passes the Bechtel test? So I think what is unusual about this movie that's different from other movies is that in addition to the women feeling pressured to marry, one of the men, actually both of the men, are get feeling pressure to get married. Because Phil is being pressured by Judy to get married, so that or like to say that they're getting married, so that Betty and Bob will get get engaged or like feel free to get engaged. But Phil is also like pressuring Bob to settle down so that he can have yeah. forty five minutes all to himself. And <laughs> so there are probably moments when they're when the two sisters like talk about something that's not you know Wallace and Davis. But, you know, if there is, it's fleeting. Yeah, I mean, I would say that I think it passes just because they talk about the business of their act together. That's true. But I wouldn't 
say that it's a super feminist movie or anything like that. But there, I mean, both characters are at least somewhat developed and they have jobs and they talk to each other about their jobs. Yeah. So, well, and they're so like clearly, yeah. And they like, you know, she, um, Judy, you know, is, you know, proactive and writes a letter to Wallace and Davis and says, you know, like you were in the same regiment. Well, she pretends to be their brother and tries to like get them to, you know, on a pretense, come see their floor show. So they're, like, enterprising in a way that's not just about, like, getting married. It's about, yeah. you know, advancing their careers. Yeah, I thought she, um, Judy was pretty sobby. Mm-hmm. And I liked that. Yeah. In a, like, kid sister kind of way. This movie definitely made me wish that I had a sister. I always wanted a sister, and I really liked the sister's song. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I... I I don't know. I was like, I could never have a sister act. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a sister. You have to settle for the sirens instead of a sister act. Okay. Next best thing. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. What about the social justice message? Well, I think you touched on it a little bit at the beginning, or closer to the beginning when you talked about just, like, the ageism and the fact that, like, here, here are these men who left the service and now are sort of forgotten and don't, like, there's not necessarily a place for them in society afterwards and, you know, after the war. And that's sort of an interesting thing that hasn't really come up in the movies that we've discussed. It's a little bit different from some of the other issues that have come up in other movies. Yeah, I... I think that there is a message that's kind of like, remember our veterans, basically. <laughs> yeah. Which could still be relevant today. And th- there's just sort of like an underlying message of kindness mm-hmm. and like... And loyalty. people first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and they make choices during the movie where they put relationships above money mm-hmm. and career advancement. Yeah. So overall, it's a pretty good message. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's also a reference to a minstrel show. And <laughs> yeah, that, that that is not social justice I'm sort of glad that it, like, I guess in a stage show, you if you can take it out, take it out. But, you know, I think it's important to watch movies like this that, and, you know, I haven't seen Holiday Inn, but I'm sort of interested to see it. Just to see, like, that's the kind of thing that was, like, perfectly, people thought that was an okay kind of, like, art form. Yeah. Well, and it was pretty clear there were elements of the act that were definitely borrowed from African American Mm -hmm. theater traditions. Yeah. But, like, you know, presumably they capitalized on those traditions and then built careers in realms that would not be open to Mm -hmm. black performers. Right. So that is, uh, you know, also the subtext of this. So are we ready to rate? I feel prepared to give this a higher score than I was planning on giving it when we agreed to do this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just because it was far better, like, a movie and more entertaining a movie than, than I remembered it being. So I might give it, like, like a four. A four? I could see. I mean, it. this is a movie that's still popular, you know? Like, it seems like it has stood this test of time. Yeah. 
And it's people still, I know people who watch this every year at Christmas. Yeah. I mean, I feel kind of like, I don't know, can we do quarters of a score? Because I feel actually like I want to give them, give it a 3.75, but. I don't know. We need to refer to the rule book. (laughs) (laughs) Can you whip it out right uh... now? Okay, let me, I'll, I have it in front of me. I'll look right now. (laughs) There's nothing in there about, uh. (laughs) Okay. We'll allow it this time. (laughs) What would you give it? Uh, I'm going to give it a three and a half. All right. You're always Which, harsher um, than I am. <laughs> I know. Except when it comes to yes. Gene Kelly movies. <laughs> but it's fine. <laughs> I just, I tend to, there's a certain aesthetic to the movies that are like from the 50s that I don't like as much. Mm-hmm. So like it, in some ways I feel like if, if this was like in the, I don't know, there's something about it that turns me off a little bit but I like you was pleasantly surprised re-watching this of how much I liked it and he, such amazing performers with the singing and dancing that I really enjoyed it and we're not even like in the holiday season yet but it made me feel very Christmassy it made me want snow yeah so yeah I'm, I'm gonna give it 3.5 right. fair good um, and then this is our last episode for season two so we're gonna take a little break yep uh and we'll come back with season three um in 2019 yes yes so that's a wrap may it please the court i submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex follow the screen sirens on twitter at the screen sirens and leave us a review on itunes or soundcloud to help other people find us Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.